Good evening. Many more stuck in Afghanistan desperately trying to get out. The U.S. says the Taliban isn't helping. What's going to happen in New York after the tremendous damage in the wake of Hurricane Ida? Are we ready? How can we become ready? We'll hear more from the cities, some city experts on these issues. We talked to um, also Deepa Kumar, a author and uh, whose uh, investigation into the fate of women in Afghanistan is worth a read. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. At least four planes chartered to evacuate several hundred people seeking to escape the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan have been unable to leave the country for days. With conflicting accounts emerging about why the flights weren't able to take off as pressure ramps up on the United States to help those left behind to flee. Secretary of State Antony Blinken confirmed the reports today and demanded the Taliban let the flights through. As of now, the Taliban are not permitting the charter flights to depart. They claim that some of the passengers do not have the required documentation. While there are limits to what we can do without personnel on the ground, without an airport, with normal security procedures in place, we are working to do everything in our power to support those flights and to get them off the ground. That's what we've done. That's what we will continue to do. Specifically, we're working with NGOs, with advocates, with lawmakers around the clock to help coordinate their efforts and offer guidance where we can. We're helping to arrange landing rights and liaise with other countries in the region in the question of overflight. Uh, we've made clear to all parties, we've made clear to the Taliban that these charters need to be able to depart, and we continue every day, virtually every hour, to work on that. And that's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. According to an Afghan official, the planes are in a small airport in the northern Afghan city of Mazar-e-Sharif and were bound for Doha, Qatar. The massive airlift of Americans and their translators and other aides happened at Kabul's international airport, initially closed after the U.S. withdrawal, but where domestic flights have now resumed. We'll have more on Afghanistan later in the newscast. Israeli forces are reportedly arresting relatives of Palestinian prisoners on the run after their brazen escape from a high-security prison in Israel. Adamir, the Palestinian Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, said today at least seven family members of the escapees were detained by Israeli soldiers throughout the occupied West Bank. The Israeli authorities have stated they want the men who they say are armed, dead or alive, and their escape presents a major security threat as four are serving life sentences and the Israelis claim have nothing to lose. The prisoners escaped from the Gilboa prison, which is supposed to be one of Israel's most secured facilities. Such breakouts are extremely rare. Local media reports say the men, who likely shared the same prison cell, escaped through a tunnel and appeared to have received some outside help. The tunnel appeared to have been dug from below a toilet in the cell from which the prisoners crawled their way out of the facility. And in the United States, one of the nation's largest Confederate monuments came down today as workers removed the figure of General Robert E. Lee that towered over Virginia's capital city for more than a century and became a target of protesters seeking to abolish symbols of racism. One of the nation's largest Confederate monuments came, uh, pardon me, uh, the 21-foot, 6-meter 
Bronze sculpture sat atop a granite pedestal nearly twice that tall, towering above Monument Avenue since 1890 in the former capital of the Confederacy. After George Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis ex-cop, the area around the statue became a hub for protests and occasional clashes between police and demonstrators. The pedestal has been covered by constantly evolving colorful graffiti, with many of the hand-painted messages denouncing police and demanding an end to systemic racism and inequality. And a new federal report says solar energy has the potential to supply up to 40 percent of the nation's electricity within 15 years, a tenfold increase over current solar output, but one that would require massive changes in U.S. policy and billions of dollars in federal investment to modernize the nation's electric grid. The report by the Energy Department's Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy says the United States would need to quadruple its annual solar capacity and continue to increase it year by year as it shifts to renewable dominant grid and our to a renewable dominant grid in order to address the existential threat posed by climate change. Released today, the report comes as southern and northeastern states clean up from the damage caused by Hurricane Ida, the second megastorm in a month that had an insult upon the injury of the COVID pandemic's latest surge, filling hospitals in Louisiana where the death toll from Ida reached 26 today. Yesterday, Mayor Bill de Blasio repeated his warnings to New Yorkers that a new normal has arrived with stars accompanied with uh, accompanied by mandatory evacuation orders and unprecedented chaos. Speaking to de Blasio's new normal, Erwin Redlener is a pediatrician and a director of the National Center for Disease Preparedness at Columbia University. Dr. Redlener says the city wasn't ready and officials have a lot to learn. Obviously, New York City was not prepared this is a problem because it has developed as a unique threat to New York City, this idea of massive rainfall causing flash flooding that could be lethal, as it was, to so many residents of this area. And it was very different from Sandy, which we experienced in 2012, which was flooding that occurred from the sea during a massive storm. This idea of such significant rainfall that could cause so much damage and death in New York City and the area is a new one on all of us. We're not used to it. Is that the problem? Is something we could be used to? Other people can deal with it. We haven't had to deal with it really to this extent before where we had flooding of subways, flooding of sewage lines, flooding of basement apartments, all happening very, very quickly in a city that really was not prepared to deal with this excess water or to even rescue people who were trapped in places like subways or their basement apartments. Are we facing a threat from sea level rise because of global warming or from extreme rain events? It seems like they got it wrong. The problem, Paul, is that we have a situation where emergency planners are always uh, more or less inclined to prosecute the last war. So whatever happened last time that was severe and dramatic is what we spend a lot of resources on. The challenge here is to be looking forward and not being caught off guard like this anymore, and especially problematic and the common denominator with much of the situations we've been experiencing in the last few years, and certainly will be even more so in the coming years, is climate change. And the amount of rainfall, for example, that we're getting now in a typical flash flood, flash uh, rainfall, is 10 to 20 percent more than it was previously. Much of that is the direct 
result of change in the global climate that affects everywhere, including here in the New York area. Do we need to bolster our ability to prevent uh, seawater from coming in in a big coastal storm? Of course. But do we also need to do better at understanding what the drainage issues are in New York City? What drains got clogged up and why? And what happened in the subway system? What are we going to do about that? As far as apartments are concerned, we have at least 50,000 basement apartments, many of them illegal, that become death traps for people in a massive rainfall like this. This uh, problem with the basement apartments, what could be done about it? The majority of the basement apartments have been apartments created out of basements by landlords who want to increase their income and also benefit a lot of low-income people who need a place to live. But to fix that would be a multi-billion dollar price tag and a long time to find other places to build and for people to live in and to shut down the apartments that they had been living in. And all this, Paul, relates to what are the priorities? What should we be preparing for? How do we allocate and appropriate the funding that's going to be needed? And it's a lot of money. So it's a major challenge for this city and other cities, including Miami and many other coastal cities, to figure out where they're going to get the money and how are they going to spend the money to make sure our communities are as safe as possible. Is the next mayor ready for it? One would hope so. I'm not so worried that the next mayor won't be thinking about this a lot and ready for it. What I'm worried about is that the next mayor and the current new governor will be thinking imaginably about what other kinds of calamities are possible in this new world of climate change before those calamities actually hit us. Are we preparing sufficiently for the future? And that remains to be seen. Erwin Redlener is a pediatrician and director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University. And President Joe Biden held a belated Labor Day celebration at the White House today as he made the case for his large-scale economic agenda and how it would benefit working and middle-class families at an event honoring labor unions. Ordinary people who never thought about the technician at the drugstore, never thought about the grocery store worker, never thought about what that firefighter has to do when they go in. They don't ask, do you have COVID or not? Never thought about the people who keep this country up and running before. I really mean this sincerely. It's not, it's not a political, it's a reality. And I think people went, whoa, whoa. And instead of, which was a good thing, banging pots and pans when uh, people came back from rescuing other folks, I think they began to realize, you know, this is part of the deal. And to use my dad's expression, and I mean it sincerely, and some of a few of you knew my dad. You see, everyone's entitled to be treated with dignity. And that's what the labor union is all about, dignity. It provides dignity for people who deserve to be treated differently. And before I go any further, I'd like to uh, pause for a moment of silence to honor the hundreds of union workers and essential workers who have died from COVID-19 and honor a buddy, John Sweeney, who we lost earlier this year, and to honor a truly dear friend, Rich Chumka. A moment of silence, please. Biden had been introduced by a health worker and COVID survivor who spent 30 days on a respirator. She says workers are at the front line of the pandemic and need to get vaccinated. My name is Jocelyn Cruzes, and I'm an Arizona essential worker and member of the United Food and Commercial 
Workers Local 99. This past 18 months have been difficult and test to all of us in different ways. As a COVID survivor who was on oxygen for 30 days, I know firsthand how dangerous this pandemic has been for workers like me who couldn't stay at home and losing my beloved mother to this virus past last year. I enjoy going to work every day now because I help save lives by administrating vaccines and helping so many in my community to keep themselves, their families safe. We need the Congress to do more by passing the Build Back Better legislation. The president spent Labor Day holiday on vacation at his home in Wilmington, Delaware, and visited a local union hall at one point during the day. And as the United States is attempting to spend its way out of the out of the disastrous effect of COVID on jobs, and a weak jobs report reflected that on Friday, looming above has been the threat of inflation. Printing too much money makes prices go up in an economy that's not growing fast enough. Today, the White House announced actions to enforce antitrust laws, crack down on illegal price fixing, and create a more competitive and transparent supply chain, all with the intention of lowering prices for consumers on things like beef, pork, and poultry. The announcement was made by National Economic Council Director Brian Deese at the White House today, who blamed the recent price hikes on the grocery store proteins. About half of the overall increase in grocery prices can be attributed to a significant increase in prices in three products, in beef, in pork, and in poultry. And in beef and in pork, we've seen double-digit increases in prices over the last couple of months. Um, in fact, if you look at the category that uh, is grocery prices, what economists call food at home, so food that is being uh, purchased uh, to eat at home, um, in a number of areas we've seen, if you take out those three categories, we've actually seen inc- uh, price increases that are more in line with uh, historical norms. And we've seen some categories, for example, fresh fruits and vegetables prices have actually declined uh, since the end of last year. And if you look at a category of prices like eggs, the price of eggs has actually come down over the last couple of months. The real drivers in these three areas, these three proteins. National Economic Council Director Brian Deese, he presents another good reason to eat your veggies. One of the problems Deese mentions is consolidation among meat producers. The top four beef packing companies, for example, control 82 percent of the market. And Speaker Nancy Pelosi said today lawmakers will be briefed in coming days about security plans for the Capitol during a rally later this month in support of people charged with crimes related to the January 6th insurrection and maintain that, quote, we intend to have the integrity of the Capitol be intact. Pelosi says the government won't be intimidated. The assault on the building, that was one thing. But the fact is they also made an assault on the Constitution of the United States. January 6th is not just any random day. It is a day prescribed in the Constitution of the United States for the Congress of the United States to accept the results of the election as put forth by who won the Electoral College. So sad that even with the horror, the defecation, the physical violence, the crudeness of it all of that assault on the Capitol, and I was insistent and Senator McConnell, we all agreed in the leadership that we would come back. We were not going to resume someplace else. We were going to come back, not in an undisclosed location, but in the capital of the United States. That even after all of that, a majority of the Republicans in the House voted not to accept 
the certification of the Electoral College. And now these people are coming back to praise the people who were out to kill, out to kill members of Congress, successfully causing the deaths. Successfully is not the word, but that's the word, because it's what they set out to do of our law enforcement. We want to return the Capitol to a place where people can come, children can learn, families can celebrate together the greatness of our country. Nancy Pelosi. Supporters of former President Donald Trump are planning a September 18th Justice for J6 rally. The September 18th rally in support of the more than 570 people charged with crimes related to the attack on the Capitol is being organized by a group called Look Ahead, Amer- pardon me, Look Ahead America, which is led by Matt Brainerd, a former Trump campaign official. The rally marks the latest Capitol security concern in a year of multiple major incidents. A, that have led to the deaths of Capitol Police officers. A man rammed his car into a security barricade in April, killing Capitol Police officer William Billy Evans and injuring another. And last month, a man drove his truck onto the sidewalk in front of the Library of Congress just across the street from the Capitol and claimed he had a bomb, causing a tense five-hour standoff before the man surrendered. And today, survivors of the September 11th attacks who had worked at the Windows on the World restaurant and survived met today to talk about their experiences and make the links to the COVID pandemic. The organization sponsoring the event, Rock United, was founded amid the grief following 9-11, along with two surviving workers of Windows on the World. The president and CEO of the group is Dr. Seku Sibi. He was a cook and dishwasher at the time. I was employee number 12495 at Windows on the Wall. I was that number that reflected who I was at Windows on the Wall each time I clock in and clock out. For nearly three years, I was a cook, dishwasher, sous chef, you name it. And I did practically everything in the back of the house. I made through lasting friendship with so many of my coworkers. My good friend, Moises Rivas, and I sweep shift. He worked in my, in my place on Tuesday, September 11, 2001. Call it destiny or luck. That saved my life, but I lost my dear friend. After 9-11, I was bearing this guilt, the jacket, uniform, the smell of vegetables, meat and desserts. All of that reminds me of a 9-11 tragedy. The windows on the wall survivors, including myself, organized again our former employer. Soon after that, the Restaurant Opportunity Centers of New York was born. With our mission to fight for living wages, improve working conditions, and better job protection for restaurant workers. Now with the unprecedented public health crisis that we're facing, I have seen various similarities of it impact of 9-11 on restaurant workers. Since early March 2020, thousands of businesses have closed down as the coronavirus rapidly spread in New York City and across the country. Millions of restaurant workers have become unemployed and still faced with a lack of health care, eviction or foreclosure, and mounting bills with no relief in sight. We have been working tirelessly with restaurant workers our community partners and allies and government agencies, such as the the Department of Labor, to provide a voice and a stronger platform for all restaurant workers to achieve racial 
gender and economic equity in the restaurant industry. My children are now all grown up. I have told them about what I experienced during 9-11. I have taught them about the lesson that I've learned from such a terrifying situation. Three weeks ago, I drove my oldest daughter to college. She was born on October 3rd, 2001, meaning three weeks after the tragedy. I was a proud and happy father. I truly made me realize that 20 years since 9-11 have been a long time. And what a journey it has been. I always go to the World Trade Center Memorial site and pray for my friends and co-workers. For those who don't know, it is a Black 67. I will always remember them for as long as I live. The president and CEO of Rock United is Dr. Seku CB. At 8.46 a.m. on September 11, 2001, a plane crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. All 79 people on the 107th floor died, including 72 staff members of Windows on the World. And in Afghanistan, as residents who failed to get out of the country during the chaotic American pullout last month hide and beg desperately over cell phones for rescue, many are concerned or expressing concern over the fate of women under the infamously misogynist Taliban. Deepa Kimar is professor of media studies at Rutgers University and author of Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. The book is set to be published on September 11th. She says the women of Afghanistan don't need or want outside help to win their liberation. So the Afghan war, the NATO occupation, the U.S. occupation has been a complete disaster. The justification to go in and make war and then occupy that country was based on finding Osama bin Laden, but secondarily also on the narrative that the U.S. was going to go and liberate Afghan women. Very little has changed for Afghan women in the last 20 years. Some of the forces that actually started the attacks on women's rights, which is the Mujahideen forces, proxy warriors, if you will, that the U.S. supported, trained and armed during the war with the Soviet Union in the 1980s, the U.S. actually chose to put those very same people into positions of power after the occupation began. And so it's not surprising that for the vast majority of women who live in the countryside, 70% of Afghans live in the countryside, they've seen little to no improvement in their lives. Some things did change in the cities, such as healthcare and education, but certainly not for rural women. Is it possible to change Afghanistan internally to a more equitable society? Women in the city centers actually have enjoyed a number of rights. Women were part of writing the constitution of Afghanistan in the 1960s, in the 1980s. They were doctors, lawyers, and professionals of various sorts. They were elected to government. The decline in women's rights really begins with the U.S.-backed Mujahideen and their very conservative and reactionary attitudes towards the role of women in society. And of course, the U.S. knew full well that this is what would happen when they supported these forces. One Mujahideen was a man by the name of Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, 
who came to the CIA's attention and was recruited by them, one of the things that made him famous or infamous, I should say, is that he would throw acid on the faces of women who did not wear the full burqa, the full veil. Back in the 80s, in the cities especially, women did not wear the full blue burqa, which has now become the signature way in which we see Afghan women. More religious women would wear a headscarf or they would wear garments that covered their body, but not the full burqa. That's very important to keep in mind is the agency of women themselves. And yes, absolutely, the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan is a feminist organization that has been fighting for women's rights in that country for many decades. And some of their spokespeople actually said they do not want the U.S. to intervene. They are perfectly capable of liberating themselves and that, uh, you know, liberation does not flow from the barrel of a gun. The U.S. decided to ignore them and go ahead and intervene anyway. There have been protests by women, some tolerated by the Taliban, some not. Certainly in the cities, there is fear, a legitimate fear and anxiety that the Taliban have not changed, have not learned anything new, and that they will continue to hold on to their reactionary and misogynistic views. We have to see what happens. Certainly with the U.S. out of the way, it will be possible for Afghans themselves to come together and figure out how they want to deal with the Taliban and put their views and their aspirations together in a more cohesive manner without constantly being under threat of drone strikes, of attacks, and of strange people showing up at their doors and upending their lives. What does this all say about the power of American imperialism? This is what happened in Vietnam as well, didn't it? The entire rationale is if we just stayed a little longer, stay a little longer, we can win because this is the big empire on the global stage. Well, the defeat in Iraq and now the defeat in Afghanistan shows quite clearly that U.S. occupation, that the U.S. trying to go in and remake societies under the guise of bringing democracy and all that sort of rhetoric is actually a dead end. Deepa Kimar is professor of media studies at Rutgers University, and she's also the author of Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire, set to be published on September 11th. And finally, the Department of Homeland Security cautioned in its latest National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin, the 20th anniversary of the September 11th, 2001 attacks, as well as religious holidays we assess could serve as a catalyst for acts of targeted violence. DHS has said the anniversary of the attacks next this month could inspire violence among foreign terrorist groups. John Miller is a deputy commissioner of intelligence and counterterrorism of the NYPD. We operate on the idea that there is a threat out there and that we have to continuously hunt for that before the event, during the event, after the event, and not just at the event. Our counterterrorism deployment around these days will not just be at the 9-11 plaza, at the U.S. Open, where we have a very layered counterterrorism deployment, but around the city, because this time of year, of course, we pull out all the stops. And we've stepped it up this year, not because of specific information about something in New York, but because we want people to see it. We want people to know they're safe. We want people to know that we're here and that we're protecting that event and this very important time of remembrance. 
According to the new advisory, actors are increasingly exploiting online forums to influence and spread violent extremist narratives and promote violent activities and are further exacerbated by grievances over public health safety measures and perceived government restrictions. In other words, domestic terrorism. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.